Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. The legends are true. With overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. The Bowery Boys episode 334. Pulitzer versus Hearst, and the rise of yellow journalism. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And today we are diving into a stack of old newsprint, mm. old yellowing, yellowed newsprint, to tell a story that has some um, relevance to us today. Mm-hmm. A story of two of the most famous names in New York newspaper history, Joseph Pulitzer and William Randolph Hearst. Now, neither of these men got their starts in New York City, but they would both move here and run extremely successful and extremely colorful newspapers that would bring about a new era of sensational reporting. They would wage war with each other in an all-out battle to be the most read paper in the city. Now, this new form of reporting, this sensational style of reporting would be called yellow journalism. And it often focused on scandal and on outrage. But these men also claimed that it could be a tool to make the city and the nation better. They believed that they could use their papers to expose corruption and hypocrisy. So Joseph Pulitzer's New York World and William Randolph Hearst's New York Journal made newspapers and the news in general more popular and more accessible. They would gain masses of new readers by focusing on stories that really had more of an everyday appeal. And to attract new readers, they would look to an audience that had largely been ignored by the mainstream press, that steady stream of new arrivals to the city, immigrants from around the world. Of course, you know the names of these two men, right? They, they have names that live on today. You have Pulitzer, which you may know, thanks to his establishment of journalism schools in this country, and the creation, of course, of a certain prize. And then Hearst, whose name and company lives on as a major magazine publisher uh, to this day. And his life, or a very thinly veiled copy of it, uh, would be immortalized in the 1941 film classic, Citizen Kane. But who were these men? Today we'll be telling their stories, how they fought for readers, and then fought with each other. So join us as we flip through the pages of Pulitzer, Hearst, and the rise of yellow journalism. 
Okay, Greg, well, I want to start our story and, and my story of Joseph Pulitzer with a pretty important meeting that took place in April of 1883 between Mr. Pulitzer, who was visiting from St. Louis, and a certain rascally robber baron uh, who we talk about sometimes. Can you guess which rascally robber baron he might have been meeting with? <laughs> Oh, there's such a cornucopia of them to choose from here in the Gilded Age. Um, might it be Jay Gould? It was, in fact, Jay Gould. Oh, um, yes. in, in, the investor and owner of railroads, the speculator, the manipulator, the robber baron, that Jay mm-hmm. Gould. Well, Joseph Pulitzer, who was 36 at this time and who had immigrated from Hungary to the U.S. 19 years before, was now the owner of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. And he had come all the way from St. Louis on this day in 1883. He was sitting down with Mr. Gould to try to negotiate buying the New York World, a, a sleepy old newspaper that was losing thousands of dollars every year and which was now owned by Jay Gould. Jay Gould, the publisher. That is that is certainly an aspect of his biography that um, I've forgotten. So he owned the New York World. Yeah, this is kind of a. It's sort of a quirk to the story and to his story. The ownership of the World had sort of been th- tossed into another deal that he was involved in to sweeten the deal. And you know, as any good robber baron would, he realized that he could actually use the paper to to try to influence the public, you know, and promote his own mergers and monopolies and such. But by this time, by 1883, he was tired of it. Uh, it was losing thousands every year. He was eager to sell it off uh, for a price, which in this case he was offering to Mr. Pulitzer for more than half a million dollars. Um, that's a big chunk of change to pay for a newspaper that is losing money, right? <laughs> well, it did have some assets. You know, it had a staff. It had. It did have a pretty paltry readership, only about fifteen thousand daily readers. But it did have advertisers, and it had. It had a group of newsies of its own. You know, street sellers. It had an infrastructure mm-hmm. in place, and and it also had an office building. Right. Although that was extra. Gould was asking $200,000 more for the building um, that has the offices at 31 and 32 Park Row, uh, just across from City Hall. The only problem was that Mr. Pulitzer didn't have that kind of money. He, he had become quite rich off of the Post-Dispatch in St. Louis, but not that rich. So he left Gould's office and headed back up to his hotel, the Fifth Avenue Hotel at 23rd Street, in Fifth Avenue, rather dejected, where he talked over the entire situation with his wife, Kate. So you set up an intriguing scene. Mm -hmm. I have no idea where this is going to go, but let's actually start at the beginning. I want to know a little bit more about Pulitzer and where he came from. Sure. Uh, Joseph Pulitzer was born on April 10th, 1847, in a town in southeastern Hungary, uh, into a Jewish family that was affluent when Joseph was young, but it became quite poor after his father died when he was only 11 years old. So looking, you know, for money and looking for a little adventure, he enlisted while still in Europe to serve in the Union Army during the Civil War when he was just 17 years old. And he made the trip over in 1864, arriving in Boston, uh, but then he made his way quickly down to New York. So then how did he get into the newspaper business? 
Well, that would actually happen about a thousand miles away in St. Louis. And that was only after a bunch of other jobs here in New York had fallen through. He, as many of us have, experienced, you know, a stretch of rather unemployed, down on his heels, kicking around, wondering what to do with his life kind of a period in New York. And so and so he decided to get out of town. He hitched a ride on a freight train for free, headed for St. Louis. Well, and St. Louis is an interesting place here mm -hmm. uh, during this period. It's actually one of America's biggest cities. It's a thriving city at this point. Rivaling Chicago. Yeah. So I imagine uh, the place is full of jobs full for him of, to take. Full of jobs and full of German speakers, too. It had a huge German population. And remember, Pulitzer at this time was still learning English. So he could find a job there that allowed him to speak German. So he got, you know, various odd jobs. He waited tables. He hung out in kind of philosophical circles. He made some brainy friends. He played chess a lot. Uh, he started getting involved in Republican politics. He actually made, struck up a friendship with an older Carl Schurz to go back to the character we just covered. In our Yorkville show. Exactly. But in short, you know, he was still trying to figure out what to do with his life. And so he became a lawyer. So we have Pulitzer here in the year 1868 in St. Louis and in a new job as a lawyer. Not really happily as a lawyer, but that's what he was doing. It used his intellect. He was still really working on his ability to speak confidently in English. Uh, but he was, he was already quite a good writer in English. Now, the building where he practiced law also has the, the office of the city's German-language newspaper called the Westliche Post. And that year, when he was just 21 in 1868, he got hired as a reporter for the newspaper. And unlike his law firm job, he actually thrived in this environment. He quickly worked his way up at the paper and even became a part owner of the paper. And all the while, while covering stories, he was also getting more involved in St. Louis politics and was even elected a Republican member of the state legislature. Yeah, and all this happened in a very short period of time. Very quickly. And this is obviously post-Civil War. It's very interesting that he's a Republican. Right, because the parties were also kind of going through their own upheaval and identity crises, you know? He was a Republican. He became a member of the liberal Republicans, and then sort of upset about a number of things, he actually switched over to the Democratic Party in the early 1870s. And when he switched over, he switched over. He went around campaigning with lots of energy for the Democratic candidate Samuel Tilden for president, of course, in the messy election of 1876. And through all of this, through that hot mess of an election, through all of this <laughs> campaigning and politicking, whatever, he's still working for this German-language newspaper, The Post? Um, no, because by 1878, he had actually sold off part of his ownership in the German paper and then used the money to buy his first newspaper or his first newspapers. He bought first the St. Louis Post and then the St. Louis Dispatch, which he then merged together to form the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. And he quickly attracted readers by, you know, adopting a rather sensational style of reporting. He was injecting his stories with exciting language and focusing on scandals and on crime. Now, I should just quickly 
add that this is the very same St. Louis Post-Dispatch, which is still publishing in St. Louis today. That's right? right. But were those articles, I mean, did he step over the line? Were they sleazy? Was he lowering the standards of the newspaper? Uh, not at all, I think, if you had asked him. And this is a really important point to make for this entire show. He believed um, that through these journalistic crusades that he would go on, they could actually raise the standards in St. Louis by reporting on the crimes and the scandals. He could use the paper to expose wrongdoings and to expose criminals and to expose hypocrisy. Right away, right from that first year that he owned it, he was exposing tax cheats in St. Louis, including many of the city's most powerful families. Uh, he was investigating corruption in the railroad. He printed salacious stories of, you know, public inebriation and immorality. And I imagine all of this added up to a very desirable daily newspaper. I'm sure uh, circulation went through the roof. Exactly. And uh, to be clear, Pulitzer did not invent sensational reporting. You know, the, the penny press in New York had been writing juicy, salacious stories for decades, but he may have perfected it. To quote from a delightful book, the 1967 biography called Pulitzer by W.A. Swanberg, quote, The sporadic crusade was a well-known journalistic device, but no journalist ever used it with such persistence, skill, and effect as Pulitzer. The crusade would remain a foundation stone of his editorial policy for the rest of his life, always with two aims, to build circulation and to promote reforms. He used it not once a year, but every week or every day. His crusades persuaded readers that the Post and Dispatch was a watchdog against privilege, a friend of the people. They sold newspapers. And let me tell you, it worked because his that circulation of the paper jumped from a couple thousand a day in 1878 to, by 1882, 22,000 daily readers, making Pulitzer quite wealthy. And I assume, obviously, looking to expand into other more lucrative markets. Exactly. He had, now, he had been newspaper shopping, you know, for a few years, especially in New York City. Every time there was a newspaper up for, for sale, he was there trying to bid on it. And we should add that his brother Albert, by the way, was also in the, in the same business. He was a reporter uh, for the New York Herald in 1882 when, when Joseph had visited him while in New York when he was trying to buy another paper. So what exactly got him to finally move to New York? Like what finally pulled the trigger for him to get to the East Coast? Well, unfortunately, somebody else pulled the trigger. We don't oh. we don't have time to go down this dramatic rabbit hole, but let's just say that in October of 1882, Pulitzer's trusted editor, a man named John Cockerell, uh, he got into this political dust-up with a, with a lawyer named Alonzo Slayback. Now, Slayback was so was so miffed by the way that his partner had been portrayed in the paper that he came into the Post-Dispatch office on October 13th, 1882, probably, you know, to pick a fight with the editor, Cockerell. And Cockerell, sensing that he was in danger of getting beaten up here on the newsroom floor, walked over, opened up his the drawer of his desk, pulled out a gun, turned around, and shot Slayback, 
who fell to the ground and died instantly. Wait, so his name was Slayback? Uh-huh. You can't, you, you can't, I mean, you just can't even make that up anyway. It's like a story that would have been published in the Post-Dispatch. <laughs> it, it, yes. Uh, and Cockrell was, you know, ultimately he was acquitted, but all the bad press around this, of course, it was pounced on by all the other papers in town who already didn't like Pulitzer. But, you know, the press and the public really turned against the paper and against Pulitzer. And that sent him off again looking for another market. And that is what sent him off to New York to sit down on that fateful day in 1883 with Jay Gould to talk over the sale of the New York world. All right. From the beginning of the show here, the Mm $500,000 and the office building, which was separate. Right. But he managed to get Gould down to $346,000 that would be paid in installments, which was fortunate because he didn't have the money. Um, And he would only have to lease the building. And they signed the deal. And like that, Pulitzer had bought himself a newspaper in the largest news market in the country. Granted, a paper that only had a circulation of 15,000. And because he was now broke, he was, you know, shall we say, highly motivated to turn things around quickly and to employ that same crusading style to find a much, much larger readership. So what was the opinion of those who actually worked at the newspaper of Pulitzer? Like, what did they think of him? You know, and in great cinematic style, I want you to imagine this. <laughs> he announced to the newsroom that a new paper was being born. And then he actually r- published a letter to the readers on the front page of his first edition on, on May 11th, 1883. A signed manifesto on the front page that said, quote, There is room in this great and growing city for a journal that is not only cheap, but bright. Not only bright, but large. Not only large, but truly democratic, that will expose all fraud and sham, fight all public evils and abuses, that will serve and battle for the people with earnest sincerity. In that cause and for that end solely, the new world is hereby enlisted and committed to the attention of the intelligent public. Signed, Joseph Pulitzer. Well, that sounds like it's from Citizen Kane, and we're not even at Hearst's story yet here. (laughs) Yeah, I think they might have conflated the two stories. But hold your horses here, Joe. This newspaper was still very small, Mm -hmm. 15,000 circulation, and New York had over a million people by Mm -hmm. this point. So what was he going to try to beef up his circulation? He was a small fry, I mean, by comparison, The Sun, okay, had 140,000 daily readers. And The Herald, uh, the number two paper in the city, had about the same, you know, James Gordon Bennett's paper. Uh, The other top papers in the city at this time were The Tribune and The New York Times, which were both Republican papers, rather serious. And then there were several others that were smaller, but, you know, those would be the papers he had to beat. And so if this is 1883, mm-hmm. when he first acquired the newspaper, how quickly was he able to get on top of all these other newspapers and become one of the leading papers? Pretty quickly, because he immediately launched into these crusades, you know, for reform. He he immediately was publishing articles that were supporting railroad workers who were on strike. He was supporting reducing the hours of horse car drivers, pitting him against a certain assemblyman in town named Theodore Roosevelt. 
They were publishing articles exposing the plight of the tenement dwellers. And readers really appreciated these types of stories because they also saw for the first time their own lives being covered. And within four years of him taking over, the New York world was the most profitable paper in the city. Now, the name Pulitzer is, uh, he's not making his debut on our podcast. <laughs> that In fact, his newspaper was so important to this, this Gilded Age era that a lot, of, uh, a lot of the things that have come through his newspapers have made profound impacts on the city's history. Yeah, he has come up quite often in the show. He came up in our Statue of Liberty show, or shows, I I should say, because in 1885, so just two years after taking over, you'll recall that the funding had dried up for the construction of the Statue of Liberty's pedestal, Mm -hmm. which had thrown the entire project into limbo. But Joseph Pulitzer, an immigrant himself, who appreciated, you know, the significance of having this beacon in New York Harbor, took this on as a crusade uh, with a goal of raising $100,000 to pay for that pedestal. And he promised to print every donor's name who sent in a donation, no matter how small. And incredibly, 120,000 of his readers took him up on it and chipped in to raise enough money to build the pedestal. And what's remarkable about this is, I mean, given, of course, the importance of the Statue of Liberty, I mean, this is a major civic achievement mm-hmm. by a new publisher, fairly new by this point. It's like he invented crowdfunding here, right? <laughs> Too bad they didn't have Patreon at the time, you know? It could have been <laughs> well, so true. much easier. The Statue of Liberty's Patreon page. <laughs> she gives, like, bonus freedom bon- if bon- you're subscribed. <laughs> Bonus features. But seriously, this 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 particular crusade put him at odds, you know, with many of the, the city's Republican elite, the Whitney's, the Morgans and such, who didn't really do that much to contribute, at least initially, and were kind of ambivalent about even having the statue here. But then once it did open and there were all the, you know, the ceremonies and all the pomp, they, of course, had all the best seats for those events um, and mm-hmm. often were sitting alongside Pulitzer, uh, who was a man who regularly targeted them in the press. So there was a kind of tension, especially as he would gain in prominence and wealth um, and see his own stature improve. There was a tension between Pulitzer and the other elite of the city. Well, that is delicious, but (laughs) it also underscores that this isn't just a newspaper publisher, that he has this political side to him as well in in wanting to achieve influence over the city. Yeah, and well, he actually went even further because he, as he had done in St. Louis, once in New York, he would go on to run and win an election to serve in Congress as a Democratic representative of New York's 9th District. While he was publisher, right? Yes, exactly. And for a term that started in April of 1885, during all of this Statue of Liberty drama. How did he even find the time to do all of these different things? Well, that was that was the issue. He didn't. He couldn't. And that was the reason that he actually resigned from Congress about 13 months into his term. Um, he, the next year in 1886, he resigned because he just couldn't handle it. And then, and this is in the middle of everything, because the next year in 1887, he hired a certain female undercover reporter named Nellie Bly, 
who would go, of course, undercover at the Women's Lunatic Asylum on Blackwell's Island and would produce, you know, sensational reporting that would bring about changes to that asylum. And we did a whole show on Nellie Bly back in 2015. And I mean, this just goes to show you also the kind of impresario aspect of him as a publisher because Mm -hmm. using Nellie Bly and her investigative skills, uh, he would send her on all sorts of wacky tasks, including like going around the world in 80 days, right? To (laughs) emulate the famous Jules Verne novel. Yeah, exactly. But those, those are examples of stunts that the world would pull off, right? But it's important to also remember that every day the world was cranking out many more stories that were not stunts, but were just sort of human interest pieces and exposés. Now, I know that you have personally been spending a lot of time thumbing through a lot of old back issues of the world. Do you have any specific examples um, that you could share for us, please? Well, the thing is, where do you even start? So I went on newspapers.com and I dug around and I actually went... I decided to go to a random day. Well, I went all the way back to the earliest um, issue that I could find, which was Tuesday, May 27th, 1890. Okay. And they just had one page, page 12. So that's a random page on a random day. He's been Mm -hmm. the owner of the newspaper for seven years. And Greg, here are some articles from page 12 of a random Tuesday newspaper. Okay. At the top headline, not licensed to kill. Drivers of Uncle Sam's mail carts must be cautious. And the story is about this poor woman that had been run down by a mail truck at Madison Avenue and 41st Street. Oh and it my. Goes into gritty detail, but it drew attention to the to this danger on the streets. Next to that was Where's Castaway Now? A story about a, a horse race that has a rather surprising finish to it. I it kind of lost me, but it's a sports piece. Um, next to that was something called, was a headline, Put the Painter Out. Um, that was all about a dispute between the architect and a painter at the 22nd Regiment Armory. From what I could figure out, the painter was getting like totally hosed by the architect and not getting paid. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that riled me up. And then under that was a story, a, a crime story about this guy named Jacob Konigstein. Um, who had just been sent to the penitentiary for stealing the bags of two immigrants who had just walked ashore from their ship. I mean, timely. And then my favorite, next to that, the largest story on the page, Why James Lyon Resigned. And it was a story about the stenographer at the Jefferson Market Courthouse who had finally resigned. (laughs) He was a Tammany man. It seemed like he wasn't really doing much to earn his salary and this much was explained by the subhead as it turned out quote he could no longer draw pay without working (laughs) (laughs) and those were stories on a random page page 12 of this tuesday newspaper so just imagine that kind of energy and activity and drama on Every single page and every of every day. single day of that newspaper. I mean, I'd read that. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, that's why it, it became a hit. A big hit. And and Pulitzer, we should add, put at the very top of the masthead, 
proudly, he would display the circulation every day. In this case, on this on this day, displayed 344,175. 344,000. I mean, that is quite an increase in seven years from only 15,000. Well, I mean, it almost makes you wonder if even if those circulation numbers can be trusted. Oh, well. That's outrageous, you he, know? Yeah, he made a point of having open books when it came to circulation because at the top of the front page, the banner um, included the words, circulation books open to all. Well, I think I would have checked him out just for fun. (laughs) (laughs) I can see you thumbing through uh, Pulitzer's circulation books. Um, I just want to mention one more thing that happened that year in 1890. This was the year that Pulitzer finished his new office tower, the New York World Building, which was, at the time that it opened, the tallest office building in the world. It was designed by George Post at 53 to 63 Park Row. This building came in at 20 stories tall. It was crowned with a magnificent multi-story dome, inside of which Pulitzer had his office. And did you know, Greg, it was the first building in the city to surpass Trinity Spire in height. Uh, And it would hold on to that title of um, tallest building for five years. So by this point, 1890, he's got the tallest building. He's got... Uh, the biggest newspaper. He has all of these crusades that, of course, are not only benefiting the city, but, of course, giving him a lot more respect mm-hmm. and visibility. It sounds like he had it all. And that included a lot of stress. You know, you can imagine that the strain, the pressure of all of his relentless work. These would not keep Joseph Pulitzer healthy. It turns out that Joseph Pulitzer was having a breakdown And it was about to get a lot more stressful in the world of American publishing, in New York publishing, uh, because a disruptor would soon enter the picture here in 1895. To reference another classic film, All About Eve, a sort of younger version would sweep into the picture here, uh, who would purchase a failing New York newspaper and would go head-to-head with Joseph Pulitzer. Mm. And his name would be William Randolph Hearst. So buckle your seatbelts. We'll get to William Randolph Hearst and that other crusading paper after this. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, 
the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. So now we're going to turn our attention to that, the man who would become a thorn in the side of Joseph Pulitzer, Mm -hmm. William Randolph Hearst. And his story starts in California, right? Uh Mm Uh-huh. What is his story? So William Randolph Hearst was born on April 29th, 1863. So a much younger man than Mm -hmm. the one you've just described. Born to George Hearst and Phoebe Apperson Hearst, a mother who will figure greatly into this story as we go along. Now, George was fabulously wealthy as the owner of several mining operations in California, uh, Nevada, Utah, later South Dakota. Like He went out there during the gold rush and made a bunch of money, literally pulling money out of the ground. Eventually, this made him one of California's richest men. Then, of course, that wasn't enough. So naturally, he wanted to be one of the most powerful men in California. So George bought a newspaper. That's Mm. what one does to get some power, I guess. Um, Bought a pre-existing newspaper named the San Francisco Examiner. A paper that's still around today. Yeah. Um, So Mr. Hearst Sr., George Hearst, became the publisher. And then later, he fell into some uh, political aspirations himself. And he would eventually be a U.S. senator. Wow. So already quite a few parallels here. Mm Mm-hmm. So we have a a daddy who's a senator and and who's also the owner of the Examiner. Mm -hmm. And when did he buy the paper again? Um, That was in 1880. 1880, when, so William Randolph Hearst is just a teenager, like 17 or something. Yeah, and a bit of a spoiled teenager, I must say, uh, Willie Hearst here. Dad was not around very often cause with all these other endeavors, uh, so he would prove to be quite a handful for his mother, Phoebe. Mm-hmm. Uh, eventually, um, William Randolph Hearst went to Harvard, but... Uh, let's just say he was a major party boy, mm. known for wild parties and pranks. He probably paid somebody to take the SAT for him. <laughs> he could have, because he didn't do too well at Harvard, I must say. He was always heading down to New York to party on the weekends. Mm-hmm. But I will have to say that while he was at Harvard, he began dabbling in publishing, uh, working for the Harvard Lampoon, Tom. Oh. As in, like, National Lampoon? <laughs> yeah, they would have... That would be a, another publication later. But yeah, it's, it stems from this Lampoon. Wow. Linking this episode to Chevy Chase. <laughs> Any way we can. Well... So he was quite successful at the Lampoon, you would imagine. It's a satirical publication, but unfortunately not so much with the schoolwork. 
throwing one too many beer parties, he was eventually expelled. So he got kicked out of Harvard and went back to California. Right. But, you know, luckily his dad had this newspaper, right? So Mm -hmm. and his dad was now off being a senator and doing other things. So William Randolph first went to work here at the newspaper in 1887. So meanwhile, across the country, of course, you've got Pulitzer already thriving, um, with his paper, The New York World. He's already paid for the pedestal of the statue at the time. Yeah. By this time. Right. But despite Hearst's playboy reputation, he actually thrived at the newspaper. He made it a huge success. He even discovered that he, he was kind of addicted to running publications. Like it just, it filled him with drive and energy. It helped that he was loaded. Yes, and actually that money comes into play in a in another way because he almost had just endless cash to just throw into the newspaper and make it as splashy and as flamboyant as possible. Now, he was obsessed with Joseph Pulitzer. He didn't like him as a person, but he loved the empire that he was creating and he liked the ideas, the journalistic ideas that he was putting forth in New York. So he was using those ideas a little bit here at at the Examiner, building upon a reader base of working class, you know, not just San Francisco's elite, but aiming a newspaper at the working class and elevating the stories that would be of interest to them, elevating those onto the front page. Sounds familiar. I mean, Pulitzer had been tapping into that same huge working class readership Mm-hmm. For for years by this point. Yeah, I'm creating a newspaper that was appealing to the working class. I mean, that doesn't that doesn't even sound like a shocking idea. It sounds like what a newspaper should do, but this was sort of a new angle that was happening amongst these publishers. But he was also um, bringing in a prurient sensibility, bumping up a bunch of scandals. Mm-hmm. You know, he had this huge influx of money from the Hearst family, to build a paper so that it would be self-sustaining, even when advertisers might be scared away, and even some chaste, sensitive readers. Like, he could afford to lose them and then build kind of a new kind of a newspaper and build a new readership. And it would Mm. be this model that Hearst would then use to crack into New York. But this whole time he's been off off in California. So what actually brought him to New York and into this New York market? There's an interesting thing that happens right before he comes here. And that is that his father, George, passes away in 1891. And that entire vast fortune is placed in the hands of Phoebe. His mother. Yes, his mother has all of the money. Okay, he was not left any money. She is left the vast fortune. And Mm. she really exerts great control over how he invests his money. He's spending so much money on these newspapers. But in most cases, she does acquiesce to projects that seem sound, such as a purchase that he finally made of a, another newspaper, a New York newspaper, um, a purchase made on September 25th, 1895, of a failing New York newspaper named the New York Morning Journal. The New York Morning Journal. Why does that name sound familiar? That was the paper that had been originally owned by Albert Pulitzer. 
Joseph's brother. Right. Yes. yes, because by the time Joseph had had bought the world in 1883, his brother was already operating the Morning Journal and he was filling that with scandalous stories. Yes, although apparently not as successfully. No, because he wasn't a crusader, he was just printing scandal. It takes a lot to create a successful newspaper. So here's Hearst, he takes over 1895 and Keep in mind, people are stunned, frankly. Who is this guy, all right? There's almost no professional reputation. He's essentially seen as a wealthy son of a politician. A playboy. A playboy. He's a bachelor with no social connections. He he holds up at the Hoffman house. He lives there, um, basically smoking cigars, like carousing with guests. He tends to run around with actresses and chorus girls. He sounds kind of fun. Yes, he does, actually. But he also sounds like somebody that maybe the Astros and the Vanderbilts and the other, you know, upper crust of New York society might have turned their noses up at. Yes, he's a son of a miner. He's from the West. But Hearst would go on to shock the publishing world. And in the process, change the direction, I'd say, of American journalism. You know, first of all, he's got deep pockets, Mm -hmm. which meant that he could build out a failing newspaper, almost just recreate it from scratch and create a big circulation that would eventually appeal to advertisers, but didn't necessarily need them at first. Hearst was also... Fearless, okay? He had no interest in ingratiating himself to the high society families or any of these formalities, which allowed him to break a lot of rules. He loved being this rich outsider, and he knew the power of his family money could ruffle the feathers of old New York, even though this is the other kind of interesting part of his personality, is on another level, he wanted very much to be part of New York. Mm. Counter Neb hadn't written the lyrics of the, if I can make it there, I'll make it anywhere. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of the spirit of what Hearst is going for. It's like he knew that by making it in New York would be the ultimate prize. But I guess his fate would be up to you, New York, New York, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yes. What was his, his secret? What was his big play? Well, he looked at the newspaper landscape, and he looked at the price of newspapers, right? Now, there were newspapers that cost two cents, and there were some that cost one cent. Okay, so today, just Mm -hmm. in inflation, that is about 30 cents for one cent. So a two-cent paper would have been about 60 cents today. Right. And I imagine that the two-cent paper would be larger and have more... Offer a little more bang for your buck? Yeah, but double the price. Well, with all of Hearst's money that he had here, he essentially created a two-cent newspaper out of the journal, but he priced it at one cent. And so then that is what greeted the news, the newsies, the newsboys on November 7th, 1895, with the very first edition of Hearst's New York Journal dropping the morning from the name to become the New York Journal. Wow, so he's offering this enormous paper for just one penny. Um, what did it look like? What was, what was in that first issue? To quote from the author 
Ben Proctor from his biography on Hearst, quote, Hearst imitated Pulitzer's world in page size, general appearance, and reader appeal. And what a change in format from the previous edition. A huge illustration depicting the wedding of Consuelo Vanderbilt to the Duke of Marlborough occupied all of the front page. And what a first illustration. I mean, we love mm-hmm. a... We love a Vanderbilt. <laughs> we love a Marlboro man <laughs> on the front page of his first issue. Yeah, so this was a gauntlet, I think. I mean, Hearst was out Pulitzering Pulitzer. In fact, this morning edition of The World was priced at two cents, but would be priced down to a penny because of the sudden success. Wow, so what a splash. And because of that, Pulitzer had to lower his price too down to a penny? Well, yeah, I mean, there was something newer and flashier that was very similar to what you were producing, but it was half the price. Mm. Newspapers up to this time, as you had mentioned, could be pretty stuffy things, you know, in, in earlier decades that often appealed just to men, to businessmen, right, with maybe some nods to general appeal. But what the journal did and what the world was doing, but what the, what the journal built upon was, in a way, it was a newspaper for the whole family. It had more society stories. It had more stories with appeal to women. And by this point in 1895, I mean, there were thousands of women who were working in New York mm-hmm. City um, and making their own money and who could afford to buy a newspaper of their own. Um, And in fact, the journal would go on to develop an evening journal, just as the world had an evening version. And, you know, those papers would be even more designed for working class customers. Mm -hmm, For that commute home. Yeah, because they would be released late in the day. They would have shorter stories. There would be more sports and entertainment, those types of things. And he would also, by the way, he would also develop a German language edition of the journal. And then, this is my favorite part, I believe it's your favorite part of any newspaper, the Sunday newspaper. Ah. He would blow out the Sunday newspaper, knowing that it was the one that was uh, the most purchased and like the flashiest of them. Um, he would blow it out to a massive size, this publication, and filled with information that it, it might take you a whole day to even read the whole paper. Now, why does that sound familiar today? A a paper so big that you can even buy part of it on Saturday. Um, And for both of these men and both of these papers, those Sunday newspapers, by the way, would have more of a national appeal, too. People were reading Mm -hmm. those Sunday papers across the country. Um, But just as with, with Joseph Pulitzer, I'm wondering, how did William Randolph Hearst manage to produce this massive newspaper? Well, I mean, for Hearst, it was it was quite easy, actually. All you needed to do with your deep pockets, your endless source of money, you just simply hired away all the major talents at all of the New York newspapers. Ah. But he took particular aim at the staff of Pulitzer's world. So he was able to afford to write huge checks to Pulitzer's most valuable editors and writers, most notably a man named Arthur Brisbane, who was Pulitzer's editor and then was snatched away by Hearst and actually ended up working for Hearst for over two decades, would even become the editor of the Evening Journal and would be Hearst's right-hand man. But that just seems so disloyal 
you know, and knowing that Pulitzer so regarded his news uh, newspaper reporters and editors as a kind of family, and he had this sort of like uh, paternal role in the organization. Why would his staff just bail on him like that? Well, you need to understand a little bit of the context of journalism in the 1890s about like how exciting everything is. There's more newspapers than ever. There's all this technology into newspapers. It's exciting mm-hmm. to be an editor and a writer. And just compare these two men. So Hearst is the new guy in town. He is extremely hands-on. And in many ways, he considered his newspaper to be a little bit like a laboratory, right? So he was trying all sorts of zany things in the paper. Like, if you were a journalist, this was where the buzz was. This is where you really wanted to jump in on that excitement. Pulitzer, of course, is older. Like, he had been the new kid on the block. And now it was seen maybe a little slightly more passe. He was a little less easy to work with than Hearst. Kind of high strung. Yeah. And actually, by this point, he was not around that much. I mean, he... He was not feeling well. Yeah, he wasn't feeling well. He was often sort of directing the newspaper from his home on Jekyll Island down in Georgia. In fact, Tom, nothing better illustrates this growing war between these two newspapers than what happened in the Sunday pages in 1896. Hearst eventually stole Pulitzer's entire Sunday team, including an illustrator named Richard Outcow. And these Sunday papers were bursting. They were bursting with color. They were bursting with illustrations. Mm-hmm. And this Ill- this particular illustrator, Outcow, was one of the most important illustrators in the entire paper. Yeah, in fact, he actually started introducing a regular character into some of these illustrations. A small boy in a yellow tunic based a little morbidly on some of the sickly-looking children that Alcow would see on the street, like he would sketch them. And so that that was the basis for this character, mm-hmm. um, who, who then took on the name The Yellow Kid. He was so popular that then Pulitzer allowed him to develop a whole new feature in the paper called Hogan's Alley. And Hogan's Alley featured Yellow Kid as one of the characters. When you say feature, like he developed a feature with this illustrated boy, are you saying that basically he developed a kind of comic strip? Yeah, this is the very first comic strip in American history. You know, it's built out of the idea of the political cartoon. And a lot of these newspapers, you know, had illustrated even illustrated gags in little corners and things. But this was the very first comic strip and the very first regular Sunday supplemental feature. That's huge. Think of all the Sunday comic strips you have ever read in your life. Oh, my goodness. I'm thinking Blondie. I'm thinking High and Lois, Greg. (laughs) Family Circle. What's that with the caveman? Oh, um, (laughs) BC. Was that BC? Yeah, All of them trace their lineage back to this yellow kid. Peanuts. Yes. Calvin and Hobbes. All of them trace back. You're so mainstream. (laughs) Um, But anyway, obviously, with the success of this strip, this guy was high up on Hearst's acquisition list. So he actually lures Outcow over to the journal to then produce yellow kid comics for the journal. 
Could he do that? No, um, y- yes and no. He could, but he didn't have the copyright uh, mm. for this work, which meant that what Pulitzer could do, he actually hired another artist named George Lux to then create a Yellow Kid comic for the world. So wait, then both of these newspapers were publishing their own version of the same comic strip? (laughs) Believe it or not, not only is it the first, it's the first duplicated comic strip. (laughs) Because of the popularity of this character, both the world and the journal began to be referred to as the yellows or the yellow papers, right? Because they're the two papers that had the yellow kids. So, So wait. So this illustrated feature has given us both the comic strip Mm -hmm. and also the term yellow journalism. That's a lot for, you know, a little boy in a yellow tunic. (laughs) That's that's it. (laughs) But when I think of the term yellow journalism, I mean, I feel like there's another connotation here. Doesn't it mean reporting that is not necessarily based in truth, um, exaggerated reporting, lies, you know, for the lack of a better term, fake news? Yeah, actually, that's a common perception of what the world and the journal were offering up at this time. Like, all of that is correct. But it's a little bit more nuanced than that. So the journal specialized in highlighting stories that affected real working class New Yorkers. Mm-hmm. You know, often, often that meant street crimes, murders, accidents. And, you know, and the world would do the same, of course. I mean, now they're kind of at this active competition with each other and kind of like trying to outdo each other. What the journal and the world would do is echo and amplify the concerns of its working class readers. And to dramatize that, it would paint these scenarios with these over-the-top, sensational headlines and would sometimes prop up very small crimes as a means to say to those readers, to those people who are buying the newspapers, look, we see what's happening to you. We see what's happening next door to you. We see these concerns and you should be concerned and we're putting it on our front page. Or to put it another way, if you buy our paper, we'll tell you what's going on in your own backyard (laughs) or in your courtyard. Yeah, pretty much. But could you be a little more specific? Because I gave you some really specific examples of stories Mm -hmm. that ran on a random day in 1887. Can you offer up any stories from the journal? Um, Let me peruse my yellowing copies of the journal here. No, I I went online and read them. But um, let me just give you an example of the front page from January 3rd. 1896. So they don't even have the yellow kid yet in the journal, but this is what's going on there, okay? So first of all, just as you had pointed out something in the top corner of the newspaper, the top corner box here says, quote, take care of the pennies. Why spend two or three cents when one buys the journal? Mm. All right, so that's already a little dig at the competitors here. Then, incredibly, there are six stories in a row. They're all in a row, each column, okay? It's a little busy. This is not tabloid format yet. This is the full broadsheet. This is a huge broadsheet, right? And it's very broad here. Okay, story number one, victory thus far for the Boers. Okay, so that's an international story, right? Story number two, headline, stabbed by Mrs. Carter. (laughs) 
And this is a story about the actress, Ms. Leslie Carter, who had actually become um, a big star of the stage, accidentally stabbing her co-star with a bayonet while on stage in Maryland. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Next to that, headline, Mr. Morgan not sure of the gold bonus. So J.P. Morgan, it's kind of finance news. Yeah, like national news, right? So then story number four, headline, says Mrs. Runit was murdered. He says he saw a woman intoxicated before the real estate man's house. So that's number four. It's a murder. He says, she says. Okay. Number five, headline, Morton divides the Republicans. Union leaguers up in arms. The political piece. Yes. And lastly, headline, Hacked to death while he slept. Face chopped seven times with a sharp blade of a heavy axe. (gasps) Grizzly murder? Yes. So all of that's at the very top of the page. And then at the bottom of the page, there is a series of illustrations of men. It's the only illustration on the page. These men, quote, are the high commission appointed by the president to determine the Venezuelan boundary line. Oh, I love that the Venezuelan border story gets buried on the front page under a story of a stabbing by an actress. I mean, like, it kind of tells you everything you need to know. It does. But it's also interesting that, like, as with the world sometimes, some of these stories are what we would consider to be breaking news. And other stories are kind of like overheard or like, you know, as told to kind of gossipy pieces. Yeah, I would even go further, and even in some of those breaking news articles, that the stories would sometimes be less than truthful. They would be flamboyantly embellished, and they would often rely on eyewitness accounts over official ones. Because, you know, it's just like a reporter interviewing the neighbor of the person who got axed in the head, for instance. And then reporting that as fact. Yeah. It's like this pure cold quest to sell the most newspapers by any means. Now, as you said earlier in the show, this is not new to American journalism, that the penny presses of the 1830s also designed the newspapers as like a product to sell and not necessarily, you know, an avenue in which to get the absolute truth. But the difference between those newspapers, the penny press for the 1830s and now, is that New York was a city of three million people. And Pulitzer and Hearst not only could, you know, influence those people, but could even spread this style of journalism across the country. Because they were both incredibly influential. They they both had newspapers because Pulitzer still owned the St. Louis Post-Dispatch and Hearst still had his San, Fr- San Francisco Examiner. Mm-hmm. They both would have their own kind of version of a wire service So aspiring newspaper owners in other cities would have looked to them for some inspiration. And all of this power, Tom, all of it was concentrated on just essentially two or three blocks next to the Brooklyn Bridge down here on Publishers Row. Right now, there were newspapers leaving the row. You had James Gordon Bennett and his newspaper, The Herald, of course, moving up to Herald Square. You would eventually, of course, have the New York Times going up to Times Square. But at least at this point, most of the other large mainstream newspapers were still centered here in Publishers Row. It was such a special time, you know, in publishing history. Mm -hmm. So different from what we have today. 
I would, I was about to say actually that you know how it's fun to blame the media for everything. You know how like it's just an easy crutch to say like, oh, the media is blowing this out of proportion. Okay, well, it's a little different now than it was then. In, in 2020, we are all the media. Not only are there thousands of outlets in which to get information, but we all now have like social media in which we make our own editorial decisions about the stories that we share. But in 1895, how did you get your information? There was essentially two ways. There was person-to-person distribution. Like talking to your neighbors or going to a lecture or attending a speech or something. Right. Or through printed material, books, newspapers, and journals. And by the late 1890s, as we approached the consolidation of New York City in a brand new century, Pulitzer and Hearst are among the two most powerful voices in American journalism. And these voices weren't objective. They didn't think that they needed to be objective, nor did people, for the most part, even expect these newspapers to be objective. The parameters of what we know as objective journalism hadn't even been created at this time. And that objectivity, or lack thereof, is about to factor in to something that has international ramifications. These papers are going to do their best to push the United States into a war. And we'll tackle part two of this war on publishers row, the battle for journalistic dominance between Joseph Pulitzer and William Randolph Hearst next week. On our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, I'll have images of many of the things that we discussed on today's show, including, of course, uh, some pictures of Publishers Row during the glorious Gilded Age era. That's BoweryBoysHistory.com. And we'd like to give a huge thank you to our patrons who have supported us on Patreon.com slash BoweryBoys. Your small monthly donations have been what has sustained us through these past several very difficult months. We can't say thank you enough um, for your support. It's because of you that there is a Bowery Boys podcast. And as a way of thanking you, of course, we have special patron-only audio feeds. We have the Bowery Boys Movie Club. We have the Takeout. Uh, You can read about the different perks at the different levels of membership. Head over to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com slash Bowery Boys and thank you so much. Yeah, our uh, newest episode of the Bowery Boys Movie Club, which is currently live for our patrons, is on the 1989 movie Do the Right Thing. So check that out. Also, you may want to check out um, one of our walking tours, or shall I say, our virtual walking tours, over at BoweryBoysWalks.com. That's right. We're doing them almost every Wednesday at this point. So check it out. Um, Join one of those. They might be streaming over Zoom, but they are live. They are very interactive. You can ask questions. There are some great tours to take at BoweryBoysWalks.com. So thank you very much for joining us and have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon.
The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.